the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Today is the day that uh, we honor Martin Luther King Jr., his birthday, national holiday. Of course, his actual birthday was last week, 15th. And uh, Bob Woodson, who's the founder of the Woodson Center, he had an excellent piece over the weekend about Martin Luther King Jr., and he referenced portions of his famous letter from Birmingham Jail in August of 1963, and it prompted me to go back and reread it. What an incredible letter, written longhand while sitting in prison for protesting the racist authorities in Birmingham, Alabama. For those not remembering, this was a letter in re- to uh, white clergy who had criticized King for his nonviolent protests in Birmingham, wanted him to you know, chill out, negotiate, no need for such unrest, no need to disrupt commerce on a holiday, no need to be so provocative, just be patient. He, uh, among other things, we know through the painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed, one of his observations. He also talks about this. This is an interesting passage to me because his words have application beyond race relations and certainly including race relations, but beyond race relations and relevance in 2020 America. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with a white moderate, gravely disappointed with a white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. The white moderate. Mm. Those who are content to go along. I had hoped the white moderate would reject the myth of time, meaning it's not time yet. And he was disappointed. He talked of two opposing forces in which he stands in the middle. One is the force of complacency made up of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, have been so completely drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodiness that they've adjusted to segregation. And on the other, of a few Negroes in the middle class who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because at points they profit by segregation, have unconsciously become insensitive to the problems of the masses. One force the complacent. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred and comes perilously close to advocating violence. It's expressed in the various black nationalist movements that are springing up all all over the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is nourished by the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. It's made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incurable devil. I've tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need not follow the do-nothingism of the complacent or the hatred and despair of the black nationalists. There's a more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. 
wrote King. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Bob Woodson. He is the founder and president of the Woodson Center. Bob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleased to join you again. Uh, I want to get to your piece, but I just wanted to pick up uh, King's dissertation there on the white moderate, as well as the opposing forces in the black community he stood between uh, as he memorialized in that letter from a Birmingham jail and, and your sense of their relevance today. It's very relevant. What I admire most about King he was not a leader who just reflected popular opinion or the consensus of the majority. Things step in and try to shape that majority and change that consensus. Like you read, he was against the white moderate. He said the greatest stumbling block to black progress is, as you said, not the white citizens' council. And so, but King stood against retaliatory violence. And he stood for principle. And he took a lot of hits for that. Carl Rowan, called uh, the liberal journalist for the Washington Post, labeled him a communist. And so he took a lot of hits. But he took his message to the masses of black America. And he went into Birmingham. None of the existing traditional leadership of the NAACP or the church leaders followed him. But the young people and the average person on the streets did. And they flocked to him. And as a consequence of him going around the great gatekeepers and went directly to the people, he was able to mobilize thousands. And then as a consequence of his moral leadership, he was able to mobilize the whole nation to his position that rejected violence and also rejected complacency as well. That's very relevant today because you have uh, dominating the, the narrative in the black community, a lot of black intellectuals and moderates who dominate the airways and they preach Hate America first. They are more bitter than Frederick Douglass or <laughs> Harriet Tubman, who suffered directly from slavery, and they promote a narrative that says America is racist to its core in its DNA. And they have a very poisonous message to black America, and that poisonous message is you live in a country that, that does not like you and is unjust. And when you're you're telling low-income blacks who are trapped in these toxic, crime-ridden neighborhoods that their destiny is determined by forces over which they have no control. This is a very poisonous message that must be challenged, and that's what the Woodson Center and others that we're getting together are doing. We must take King's message around the gatekeepers and take them directly to the masses of people and let them speak for themselves by their action. Bob, what do you think Martin Luther King Jr. would make of the New York Times' 1619 project? Oh, he would be upset about it because it really denigrates the country. It denigrates the founding values. You know, in that letter, he talked about the importance. These students at Greensboro sat down so, so that... America, so that we can stand up for our founding principles. Dr. King was a strong patriot. He would reject this message of negativity against the principles that you're seeing in the 1619 report. The very fact that these black scholars could write about slavery and help and, and, so, and define America by it without even mentioning a word of the Civil War. How do you write about slavery and not mention the fact that for every four uh, slaves, black slaves who were freed, a white uh, uh, a Union soldier was killed. You know, these are realities that young people know that this country paid is the only Western co uh, uh, country 
that even has a concept of, uh, of Emancipation Proclamation. You can find no other nation with an Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, it seems to me, too, as you're sort of indicating, uh, let's talk about the evil that Dr. King confronted and the evil that was visited upon black Americans for so long in our country's history, regrettably. But why don't you why don't you 1619 Project and others, white moderates, uh, black intellectuals, why don't you want to also talk about overcoming it? I mean, why don't you forget the fact that you're not doing it? Why are they not wanting to talk about overcoming it? And that is because they are the grievance uh, merchants. They profit from it. If if you if you if you if you're a problem oriented, you can consult with it. You can write books about it. You can give lectures on it. You can get paid to, uh, to talk about the grievance. Uh, Booker T. Washington spoke to this many years, uh, century, uh, decades ago, when he says, "Unfortunately, we have a group of Negroes." who profit from the despair and suffering of their people, that if black America loses its grievance, they lose their income. Booker T. Washington said that he recognized even back then you had grievance merchants, people who profit from despair, people who profit from complaining about, because they don't live in these neighborhoods where the violence is so high, where drug addiction is rampant. They live in safe, secure neighborhoods. And, 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 and so that's, that's why I think it's such a crime uh, that they're committing with the 1619 Project. There's a, the there, question I would, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bob. The question I would ask these authors is, what is a black person supposed to do once they read their report? No, but when you say to a young black that you live in a country uh, that despises you and that racism is in its DNA, what you're doing is giving them an exemption for, for, or, uh, from any personal responsibility. So if they're robbing one another and killing one another, you're telling them it's not your fault. If you're dropping out of school, you're telling them it's not your fault. And, and nothing is more lethal than giving someone a good excuse for failing. And that's what 1619 is doing. We're providing young blacks and others a, an excuse for failing rather than doing what Dr. King and others did, said, that you are defined not by oppression, but your resistance to it. Well, the that, fact that black America, in the face of discrimination and slavery, built hotels, railroads, hospitals, dental schools, uh, 5,300 Rosenwald's Booker T schools, it, it's triumph. People are, people are motivated to change and improve when you expose them to victories that are possible, not constantly reminding them of, of, of injuries to be avoided. I want to pick up this conversation with Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center on the other side. We'll be back with more next on The Dan Prop Show. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center. How do you react to uh, 
the calls, and uh, we had another one over the weekend, the calls for sort of a Marshall Plan for urban centers. That's the way back for particularly for minority communities. Michael Bloomberg pledging $70 billion to bolster black America in uh, his version of a Marshall Plan for the inner cities. The biggest decline in poverty in the black community, as I say in my in my columns, is between 1942 and 1960. It declined from about 86% down to 40%. That decline occurred at a time when racism was enshrined in our laws. And yet, over the, since 1960 and today, we spent $22 trillion on programs to aid the poor. Seventy cents of every one of those dollars went not to the poor, but to those that served the poor. And they asked not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable. Mm. But we, and yet we haven't moved the needle in the last 60 years on poverty. So why would you think a Marshall Plan would accomplish uh, with that amount of money that $22 trillion hasn't accomplished in 60 years. There's it's a, foolhardy. There's a, there's a, a lot of discussion, particularly among uh, Democrat presidential candidates, about uh, voter suppression, uh, that uh, you know Trump and Republicans are racist, and in places like Georgia they're trying to suppress the black voter. Uh, and uh, yet a new Washington Post poll that was released uh, just over the weekend asked black Americans 18 and over whether they had ever experienced a situation where they uh, were prevented from voting or where it was made difficult to vote. Ninety two percent of the black Americans polled said they have never experienced such a circumstance where they attempted to vote but were turned away. So is this a a real issue or is this an issue that's intended to uh, inflame racial animus? It's a it's a false issue. For example, the greatest uh, black voter suppression is apathy. In, in, in areas of black cities where liberal black Democrats have been in power for 50 years, the voter turnout is under 6%. You would look in Washington, D.C. in the last mayor's race, only 6% of blacks in troubled neighborhoods, Ward 7 and 8, even came out to vote. The same pattern occurred in Newark, in Trenton, New Jersey, in other black-run cities, apathy is the biggest uh, suppressor of the black vote, but no one wants to talk about that. In your, uh... that, that black Americans in these toxic neighborhoods live in a banana republic mm. where the school boards, as long as they can talk about institutional racism, they don't have to answer the question, Dan, as to why are black children failing in systems run by their own people. Mm-hmm. In your in your in your piece in the Wall Street Journal, the left forgets what Martin Luther King stood for. Uh, you uh, say that Dr. King would have rejected the identity politics of our day. Uh, elaborate on that. What would have he have found uh, disquieting about our identity politics? Because it emphasizes our differences. That somehow uh, 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 Black America has to be treated differently. What he sought is not to, to, to be accept, to treated as an exception, but to be treated as another American. He thought for the rights of, he said, what good does it do to have the opportunity to eat in the restaurants of your choice or the neighborhoods if you don't have the means to exercise it? So Dr. King, was, 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 when he died, was moving his agenda to emphasize um, economic issues, uh, issues other than race. That, that, that low-income whites 
and blacks and, and brown people have more in common than they have that are differences. So Dr. King, the last part of his life, was fighting a different agenda, a more inclusive agenda, uh, where the common ground was economic opportunity. When you uh, when you think about the last fifty years, I mean, you're a civil rights area, a civil rights era leader. So you've got a half a century perspective at least here. When you think about the last fifty years from the civil rights movement to present, what's your assessment of where we are with race relations? Have they improved markedly? Has there been some improvements and some a regression? Where do you find ourselves? I think, unfortunately, a lot of people voted for President Obama thinking it would move America further towards being post-racial. But unfortunately, the president made conditions worse by not really taking a leadership and refusing. When he had that so-called beer gate with, with Skip Gates, mm. where he emphasized uh, race when um, black uh, Panthers in in Philadelphia stood with, um, with, with billy clubs outside of a polling place and began to race, yell anti-white uh, epithets at people trying to vote. And the Obama uh, administration refused to indict them. Uh, he was sending a very strong signal that, uh, that continued to decline. And, and now we're in a sad state of tribalism uh, is dominating. Uh, so, yeah, conditions have gotten worse, but they're not hopeless. Uh, I spent a lot of time going around the country and visiting low-income people, and there is just a, a, a huge demand out there to be post-racial. So let's focus on the real issues facing America, and it is cultural, is not economic. America needs a reformation. I mean, the very fact that you have in an affluent, like Silicon Valley, the the, the mur- I mean the suicide rate among teenagers is six times the national average. In Washington D.C., the Centers for Disease Control uh, found that 10% of the city's middle schoolers attempted suicide, and there are 4,000 uh, middle schoolers. That means that's more than one a day attempting suicide. So America has a crisis of hope. It has a, a moral and spiritual thirst out there that cannot be satisfied, satisfied by addressing the color. We need to put color aside so we can sit down around the table and address this emptiness that is in the soul of many Americans, and, and they're desperate for solutions, but we can't come together and reason together and share strategies for filling that empty hole that is in the lives of people if we're constantly reminded of our differences. He is Bob Woodson. He's the founder and president of the Woodson Center. His piece, The Left Forgets What Martin Luther King Stood For in the Wall Street Journal. I cut and pasted it on Facebook, so you can go to my Facebook page and read the whole thing if you don't have a Wall Street Journal subscription because it's that important, and you should share it as well. Bob, thanks, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. And thank you for having me.
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So we uh, are on the eve of the beginning of the Senate impeachment trial. The uh, seven House managers are filing a 111-page document summarizing their opening arguments for trial in which they say, among other things, sort of a summary statement, President Trump's misconduct presents a danger to our democratic processes, our national security, and our commitment to the rule of law. He must be removed from office. Uh, so they're sort of restating their first fierce urgency of now. That was the fierce urgency of whenever we get around to it for four weeks. Uh, Trump's uh, newly minted legal team with the additions of Starr and Dershowitz. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, responding to uh, that memo from House managers. This is a brazen and unlawful attempt to overturn the results of the 2016 election and interfere with the 2020 election now just months away with respect to the uh, Democrats contention, uh, their brief, uh, the contentions in their brief. Byron York had a good piece over the weekend in the Washington Examiner, uh, and he talked about uh, the uh, two deceptions at the heart of this 111 page document, the heart of their arguments. Uh, one is a flat wrong and the other is misleading. He speaks of these two critical mischaracterizations about Trump Republicans in 2016 by the House managers in their brief with the Senate. Uh, The one that is flat wrong is the Democrats assertion that Trump wanted Ukraine to investigate a quote unquote debunked conspiracy theory. uh, That being that Russia did not interfere in the 2016 presidential election to aid Trump, but instead Ukraine interfered in that election to aid President Trump's opponent, Hillary Clinton. Uh, that is wrong because uh, there's a concession and overwhelming evidence that Russia interfered, attempted to uh, affect the 2016 election. In point of fact, uh, one of those who offered those conclusions and presented evidence in support of that conclusion was the House Intelligence Committee. No, not under Adam Schiff, but under Devin Nunez before the midterm elections where Democrats took over the actual theory purposely mischaracterized by Democrats in their brief is that in addition to Russian interference, some people in Ukraine, including some government officials also tried to influence the U S election. Right. Uh, And this of course uh, was reported by Politico and other outlets. Uh, Politico in 2017 reported that. The other mischaracterization in the Democrat brief is the assertion that in 2016, Trump welcomed Russian uh, Russia's elected uh, election interference. They uh, quote special counsel Mueller's report that the Trump campaign welcomed Russian help because it, quote, expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts. This is what York describes as misleading. Saying it's not wrong that he welcomed Russia based leaks. But it's totally out of context. The context is Trump welcomed Russian based leaks about the Clinton campaign because the media were enthusiastically embracing and repeating Russian based leaks about the, the uh, Clinton campaign, repeating, amplifying the material released by WikiLeaks from the Russian hack of John Podesta's email. You'll remember, perhaps people have forgotten, writes York, 
how prominently media organizations feature the Russia-based material. And he cites a dozen headlines uh, from all sorts of different outlets about that hacked material. So uh, Trump wasn't welcoming Russian interference in a surreptitious manner. He was just cheerleading all the negative information that was being released, uh, that had been released by WikiLeaks and amplified by the press. That's a very different thing. And how would that go to anything resembling an impeachable offense? Of course, it wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how those arguments uh, proceed at the trial. It's worth noting something else, too. Uh, It's been said by many, but it continues to bear repeating. The Washington Post story, just speaking of the media and amplifying the WikiLeaks uh, dump of hacked information. Washington Post story, the campaign to impeach President Trump has begun. That ran 19 minutes after President was after President Trump was sworn in in January, January 20th of 2017. 19 minutes after he was sworn in, the campaign to impeach the president has begun. So, again, we're supposed to take these individuals seriously. This is prayerful. This is somber. They are reluctantly abiding their constitutional duties uh, silver platters and golden pens, notwithstanding, this isn't celebratory. Of course, none of that's true, and it hasn't been true since President Trump was sworn in. We'll be back with more on impeachment, including the role that Alan Dershowitz would play. That's coming up on the Dan Prop Show after this. Don't hand me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking about uh, the latest developments in the impeachment of President Trump, the trial starting tomorrow and uh, just talking about um, the arguments contained in the briefs that were filed in advance of uh, opening remarks. I think Peggy Noonan had an interesting closing statement to her op-ed in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, thinking about uh, uh, Lev Parnas's interview last week and the GAO report on the uh, temporary withholding of the military aid to Ukraine, as well as the pomp and circumstance of carrying preceding the articles of impeachment over to the House, Our Lady of Guadalupe style. Uh, We all think, writes Noonan, we all think our breathless recitations of the latest revelations matter, but I don't know. Talking about the media. It keeps feeling like 2016, only this time with full employment. (laughs) Uh, It's pretty good. And uh, with respect to uh, keeps feeling like 2016, right, because the 2016 campaign never ended. And that was the point that I was making earlier, just before the break, about the Washington Post story 19 minutes after Trump was inaugurated. The campaign to impeach the president has begun, and it hasn't let up for a minute in the intervening three years. Uh, So going to the president's legal team, some controversial additions, both former Whitewater special prosecutor Ken Starr which I, I have to think at least a little bit. Yes, he has experience here. He's a 
competent attorney and he's been in this exact circumstance. So he has an appreciation for the dynamics. But I can't think that part of it, at least part of it, is a shot across the bow against uh, Clinton world and all of those Democrats on the Hill, starting with Pelosi, who decried the Clinton impeachment uh, and, of course, railed against it, voted against it and so on and so forth. I can't help but think there's a little bit of a message being sent with the addition of Ken Starr. Now, the addition of Dershowitz, I know it's been criticized by some, including on the right because of Dershowitz's uh, potential exposure in the Jeffrey Epstein crimes. Uh, he's been named. Jeff uh, Alan Dershowitz was named by Virginia Jufre as somebody who was there, either on on the plains, uh, on, on that that the, the island, uh, you know. So either on the Lolita Express on the island, it, the the implication is clear that he was a participant in the grotesque and illegal activities that Epstein orchestrated for so many rich and powerful. Now it's important to note that Dershowitz has denied those claims from the beginning. He actually countersued Jufre. So, again, does that mean that he can't uh, provide value when it comes to framing the constitutional issue at bar? And this is what he explained with Anderson Cooper and, incredibly, a Harvard, his former Harvard Law student, Jeffrey Tubin, who is one of the worst legal analysts, you know, praise on uh, your intellects on cable news. Uh, This is the point that Dershowitz was making. He is here as part of the team for the very limited purpose of providing the the context, the intent the founders had when they drafted the language relating to impeachment in the Constitution. This is what he was trying to explain to uh, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt's kid and his his former student, Tubin. Well, I've been asked to uh, prepare and deliver the case, the constitutional case against impeachment that benefits the president. It's the same argument I would have made if Hillary Clinton had gotten elected and she were being impeached. It's similar to the arguments I made when I testified as a witness uh, against impeachment of Bill Clinton and when I consulted with the Bill Clinton legal team. I'm there only to argue about the constitutional criteria for impeachment, which I've written about extensively and why these two articles don't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. I will go into the history of the formulation in the Constitution and the history of how these words came to be and leave it to others to argue the facts, to make strategic decisions about witnesses. That's not within my jurisdiction. And then they uh, got into the particulars of uh, abuse of power, violation of public trust, these abstractions that uh, uh, that that the the likes of Anderson Cooper and Jeffrey Tubin have exactly have exactly backwards. Uh, so this uh, education on Federalist 65 and Hamilton's language by Dershowitz ever educating his former student. How did Jeffrey Tubin get into Harvard Law? Wow. The framer said treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Other refers to matters that are close in kind. And Professor Tribe, by the way, agrees with me on this part of the analysis. So the impeachable offenses, they don't have to be specific criminal offenses, but they have to be criminal-like. They have to be like treason. They have to be like bribery. So abuse of power is not, is no, not a high crime. And, 
No, abuse of power was one of those things that was mentioned by the framers as a reason why we need impeachment, but then rejected. It was widely discussed. It could easily have been accepted as one of the constitutional that, criteria. Let me give true, you another Alan. example. Let that, me give wait you a second, Alan. All right, let me let yep. me just let me just talk for a second. I mean, yeah. the, uh, Federal sixty five, Alexander Hamilton, which you, you which sure. you write about, he specifically says that abuse of or violation of some public trust is why uh, is 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 an impeachable offense. And it no, also no, no. makes he sense. Say that. He doesn't it's, say that. He says that's why we have impeachment, and that's why crimes okay. like treason and bribery are abuses of power. And if they are abuses of power, but the criteria have to be met. Let me give you an example. Madison, in calling for impeachment, says we need to make sure that a president doesn't become incompetent. That's a good reason. But then when the criteria were debated, incompetence was not included because it was too broad. We needed to amend the Constitution to include that. If you want to include abuse of power, amend the Constitution, it won't get 10 votes in Congress because half the presidents of the United States have been accused by their political opponents of abuse of power. It's much too open-ended and too broad, and it would turn us into a parliamentary democracy in what which about Congress violating has too much the power over the president. That's not an impeachable offense. It could have been they discussed it. But they didn't put it in the Constitution. They put in crimes that violate the public trust. That is treason and bribery violate the public trust. You see how they have it reversed and the founders in their uh, maybe not infinite wisdom, but certainly wisdom, a lot more wisdom than today's uh, standard issue politicians or cable news hosts and legal analysts. They understood if you're not precise, if you content yourself with abstract phrases that it will be an endless series of impeachments of overreaches by politicians who are looking to punish their political opponents. And frankly, because of what House Democrats have done, cheapening impeachment, we're going to get that anyway. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So, did you see them? The uh, new uniforms or the uniforms for the U.S. Space Force were unveiled and their camouflage with just the name strip U.S. Space Force. So this was the, the opportunity for much ridicule on Twitter and social media. <laughs> oh, boy. For example, journalist Aaron Rupar. Trump's Space Force troops wearing camo in space is perhaps the strongest evidence yet that Id- idiocracy is a documentary. Trump's Space Force troops wearing camo in space, perhaps the strongest evidence yet that idiocracy is a documentary. Oh, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, this is a journalist. I just want to point that out again for emphasis. Because, of course, you see U.S. Space Force has a terrestrial mission. <laughs> they are not going to be taking out the Death Star. We're not going to have U.S. Space Force pilots engaged in dogfights with Cylon Raiders. They're not going to be engaging the Starship Enterprise. Uh, Journalists have a hard time separating fact from sci-fi, don't they? But it's also just so uncurious. The Space Force uh, airmen, the terrestrial mission, satellite acquisition and control. The camo uniforms. uh, Yeah, and for, you know, and the Endor Star Wars jokes notwithstanding. 
this is uh, related to the introduction of common of a common battle dress uniform that was a cost saving measure instituted by the armed forces years ago. Those are, I mean, so it's one thing to have fun and you're just joking around and, and people know that it's another thing for a quote unquote journalist like Aaron Rupar to pick that up and say, the Trump administration is so stupid. This is ridiculous. In point of fact, it's uh, the clearest evidence yet or strongest evidence yet per Aaron Rupar's own phraseology that idiocracy is a documentary, at least as it pertains to the Beltway media. Don't have the intellectual curiosity to understand what U.S. Space Force is going to be charged to do. Just have to use the occasion to, at first blush, give voice to their Trump vitriol. Remarkable. Um, All you have to do is, uh, you know, use these wonderful search engines. It's a good op-ed by Peter Gerritsen, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel in a Politico uh, a while back that uh, go that explains that the first duty of Space Force is to protect space commerce. Uh, We're not uh, taking the unprecedented step of setting up an independent space service just to provide better protection for our military satellites and improve space acquisition. Uh, The uh, mission is too small to justify a separate service. Rather, national leadership has an expansive view of economics of America's economic future in space. It's designing the service that will secure and enable an expanding multi-trillion dollar economy in space and protect its commerce as the Navy protects commerce on the seas. The first duty of a space service is to protect space commerce in addition to the other terrestrial matter of satellite acquisition and control. But, you know, that sort of um, value added for the reader that journalists were supposed to be in the business of doing. Once upon a time, maybe they were. Some, a handful, still are. Aaron Rupar is just not one of them. This is the damn project. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and again, uh, follow us, danproftshow.com, on Facebook, Twitter, at Dan Proft, or, and or at Dan Proft Show. Uh, podcasts on Spotify and iTunes and all that good stuff. Uh, good, uh, rather provocative piece by Yuval Levin in New York Times over the weekend talking about uh, the question, how did Americans lose faith in everything? We're missing today, he writes, not simply greater connectedness, but a structure of social life, a way to give shape, purpose, concrete meaning and identity to the things we do together. Each core institution in society performs an important task, educating children, enforcing the law, serving the poor, providing some service, meeting some need. And it does that by establishing a structure and process, a form for combining people's efforts toward accomplishing that task. What Levin says about our society now, our era that uh, is noteworthy, distinct, is there's a sort of institutional dereliction. He writes, a failure even to attempt to form trustworthy people and a tendency to think of institutions not as molds of character and behavior, but as platforms for performance and prominence. He uh, writes that uh, there are too few people within too many institutions 
that are not asking the question, given my role here, how should I behave? Given my role here, how should I behave? For more on this topic uh, related, we're pleased to be joined by F.H. Buckley, who's a foundation professor at George Mason University Scalia School of Law. He's also the author of the new book, American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Professor Buckley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, what about, I mean, this this somewhat speaks to uh, at least one of the premises of your book, the idea that we're sort of fraying at the edges uh, and there's a real uh, cultural and social divide. There are uh, uh, civic institutions that no longer enjoy uh, the trust of wide swaths of the American people and so are seen as less legitimate, if legitimate at all. And uh, I, I wonder how much of what Levin is describing with respect to our culture and institutions informs this idea of a national breakup. Not at all is the answer. I disagree entirely with Levin. I mean, I, okay. Levin's answer seems to be, you know, what is it that government can do to make us virtuous? And my answer is not a, not a, not a thing that virtue springs from each one of us and is not the gift of Washington. And in particular, it's not the gift of the central government. But well, my, but, but I mean, I but, but, uh, well, I'm sorry, just to interrupt you for a moment there. But but I mean, do you uh, at least start from the premise that he's starting from? You may not agree with the remedy, but the premise of this uh, this uh, uh, values divide in the country. Well, yes, um, we're more divided than ever we have been in the past. It's it's not the point that, however, we're supposed to be united around one single set of ideals or virtues. Um, but we are divided and we're ripe for secession. And I wrote the book to suggest that people who think that's not possible are fooling themselves. And precisely because secession is a real possibility, the message is, I think we should, each of us, cool it a little bit in our rhetoric and try to look for signs of unity amongst each other, you know, not, not with the government. Indeed, you know, my suggestion was just the opposite. I thought that an answer to our problems might be in, in in a kind of renewed federalism, but federalism is is a decayed kind of word. I argued for something like home rule, which is really letting each state decide which way it wants to go on a whole variety of issues. Um, and and you know, in in that case, that would be by way of calling a truce in the in the culture wars. And with respect to uh, the federal government. Uh, and maybe the country as a whole with respect to the federalist layers of government, if you will, uh, you seem to suggest that uh, we've gotten too big to be manageable. Yeah, there is a relationship between bigness and badness. I mean, smaller countries are happier. They're less corrupt. Uh, they they uh, are less willing to throw their weight around. They have smaller military budgets. And, you know, we have spent more than the next 21 countries put together. I'm not sure if that's necessary. So there, there are a whole bunch of reasons why smaller might be beautiful, but the main thing right now is is our divisions. And, and, and I think to understand American politics right now, what you have to go back to is something that Irving Kristol said back in 1992. He said the culture wars are over and the left won, and 2016 was a wake-up call for the left. I mean, all of a sudden they realized, you know, maybe maybe we didn't win. And for them, it's a kind of culture war. And, and, and 
the thought that they might lose the culture war is for them like a war of religion. And if that's where we are today, imagine where we might easily be in a year's time if Trump wins re-election and gets a couple more seats in this, in, on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, at, at that point, the disaffected states, which already are, are trying to nullify you know, federal laws, yeah, might might begin to wonder. Gee, is there a way out? Well, I mean, and what about uh, the uh, self selection that goes on in a mobile country? I mean, obviously, uh, in a twenty twenty in a census year, you see this in a pronounced way. The prospect that states like Texas and Florida are going to gain multiple congressional seats, while states like Illinois and California, and New York, are going to lose them. Doesn't that sort of address uh, some of the? Uh, uh, the, 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 the issue of people uh, not having the same sort of worldviews and wanting to, uh, or wanting to live under certain policies. And so they go where they're treated best from their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Except to the extent that Washington um, dominates the states to too great an extent. And by the way, what you just said is an answer to people who worry about whether secession would lead to violence. It wouldn't lead to violence. It would lead to a lot more money being made by U-Haul. <laughs> yes, so especially for uh, the Illinois to Dallas or Illinois to uh, Southwest Florida uh, uh, routes for their rentals. No question. You, you actually uh, yeah. you talk about uh, uh, secession here in uh, a modern context, and you write that instead of the Civil War, think of secession. As, the, as like the velvet divorce of the Czechs and the Slovaks uh, 25 years ago in the early 90s. Uh, you, you think it would be that, um, that uh, uh, seamless? Yeah, absolutely. I think it would also be a, a lot more, uh, much more similar to what nearly happened in Canada with respect to Quebec secession. Mm. Again, you know, uh, a, a whole bunch, uh, a large number of English-speaking Montrealers simply picked up and moved to Toronto. I mean, uh, you know, and... And you're seeing that already in, in terms of Chicago to uh, to Dallas. So, you know, th- that's how we would sort ourselves out. You know, I, I, what I was saying basically was what you wouldn't expect to see is a president like Lincoln sending in troops to invade a state. Right. Because because there's no seminal issue like slavery that's at bar. Yeah, right. You know. I can, you know, going to war over slavery is totally justifiable, even if that's not what the Civil War was in 1861, right? Going to war over transgender bathrooms, I don't think so. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but with respect, so then, I mean, is the model going, is this, do, you, do you see like these are all like going to be mini Brexits? You know, uh, uh, text the Republic of Texas secedes. I mean, it's sort of a Brexit-style secession, and then they just cut their own deals with uh, the United, the rest of the United States of America and Mexico and everybody else. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't think you know. There, no state has the absolute right of secession. Why? Because you'd have to negotiate things like how much of the the, the national debt would the seceding state have to pick up. You know, and, and you'd want to, you know, you may want to guarantee things like free mobility of goods and, and people. I mean, you know, you, you might say, okay, California, you know, I, we had it, you're sick and tired, fine, but we don't want a passport when we go to La Jolla. So, you know, there, there'd be these kinds of discussions that go on, and they'd be probably very fruitful and, and, and probably lead us to a place better than we are now. I mean, again, what I'm trying to suggest is, is calling the truce and the culture wars that, that divide us. 
Uh, he is F.H. Buckley. He's foundation professor at George Mason University's Scalia School of Law. The new book uh, is American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Uh, provocative stuff, Professor Buckley. Thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show so the uh, p-hat march took place again this year in washington dc with you know Man-hating shrews from across the nation holding their own little rallies in their places of residence, including Chicago, where I'm at. Uh, You remember what this has been like uh, with high-profile speakers offering Churchillian pronouncements like, oh, I don't know, uh, Madonna uh, back a couple of years ago with these important words. And to our detractors that insist that this march will never add up to anything you you as profound uh, as profound i guess as putting a pea hat on your head uh, ashley judd of course uh, another from the pantheon and of intellects who've been featured at these women's marches i I'm a nasty woman. I'm not as nasty as a man who looks like he bathes in Cheeto dust. A man whose words are a diss track to America. Electoral college sanctioned hate speech contaminating this national anthem. I'm not as nasty as Confederate flags being tattooed across my city. Maybe the South actually is gonna rise again. Maybe for some, it never really fell. Blacks are still in shackles and graves just for being black. Slavery has been reinterpreted as the prison system in front of people who see melanin as animal skin. I am not as nasty as a swastika painted on a pride flag. And I didn't know devils could be resurrected, but I feel Hitler in these streets, a mustache traded for a toupee, Nazis (laughs) renamed the cabinet, electroconversion therapy, the new gas chamber, shaming the gay out of America, turning rainbows into suicide notes. So, yeah, the sort of uh, thoughtful, measured, artistic rhetoric that you would expect with serious people who, again, 
put pea hats on their heads and, you know, placards that uh, cover the full panoply of the progressive left's agenda from climate change to, I don't know, uh, trans rights to eliminating humanity altogether. So I don't know what the purpose, you know, how that one fits with the other ones. But you get the picture. Now, it's losing some steam over the years, the PHAT march has. So, for example, NPR reporting of the march in D.C., Women's March draws a smaller but passionate crowd. <laughs> nice, nice qualifier. Would they do that for a, uh, I don't know, Second Amendment rally? A smaller or Tea Party event? A smaller Tea Party event than last year, but a passionate crowd. It's not like they're aligned with those PHAT protesters. Don't think that for a moment. Uh, the uh, demonstration, they... Uh, uh, did, however, in D.C., did feature uh, some entertainment, not of the profile of a Madonna or an Ashley Judd, but the Chilean collective Las Tesas. Yeah, sure. You're familiar with that work. Uh, led uh, the crowd in D.C. through a rendition of their uh, chart topping viral protest anthem, Un Bilador en tu Camino, uh, translated A Rapist in Your Path. Yeah, it's too bad not in time for Christmas. Here's uh here's a little uh little snippet of uh that offering. You get the picture there. Uh, it, th- these All these uh, would-be aspirants to the view panel uh, chanting and, of course, suggesting that uh, all men are rapists. And, of course, that starts with the president of the United States. Now, if this uh, viral protest anthem rings familiar, I think it was on the B-side of uh, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. We've done a little bit of a remix for you. March was all about the president of the United States. That's really what it was about. Uh, Ariel Davidson, good piece in the Federalist. Thousands gathering in D.C., thousands, not millions, not millions. Uh, March organizers estimated fewer than 10,000 demonstrators, a small fraction of the protesters that flooded the streets in 2017 to listen to Ashley Judd talk about her bloody jeans. Uh, But it was just about 2020 politics, and this is just the shrillest of the 
Democrat Socialist Party activist. That's really what we're talking about here. Uh, it's no different than, uh, you know, join Q, uh, John Cusack up in Exeter, New Hampshire for a Bernie Sanders rally. This is just a different flavor of the same darn thing. She writes, so when I asked a woman named Daniela about the politics of the event, if she thought it had any connection to the 2020 Democratic primary, she looked taken aback. I wasn't looking for any signs in particular, she said, in reference to my question of whether she thought there were more Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren signs present, but definitely more Warren signs. <laughs> Yeah. Right. No, no. Of course, this has nothing to do with the primary and has nothing to do with the 2020 general. Uh, Miss Davidson also notes uh, she was there. She noticed a large Pete Buttigieg cut out making its way down K Street. Uh, and uh, when I referenced Mayor Pete's head bobbing above the masses, there were audible chuckles. The. Um, uh, she essentially said uh, or said, goes on to say that, uh, you know, abortion was a big part of it. Um, she writes, in order to justify the march's obsession with Trump, there would have to be some noticeable reduction of women's rights under the Trump administration, but such a reduction simply doesn't exist. It's possible that former marchers realized that, which might explain why today's numbers were a pitiful showing compared to 2017's attendance. There was so much anger in 2017 motivated, frankly, by hysterical predictions that never came to fruition. Predictions peddled by the Women's March. Yeah, reality has given lie. Uh, to borrow a, a phrase from Les Mis, it's killed the dream. The Women's March PHAT organizers from 2017 dreamed. This is the Dan Prop Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And, and I can't believe this turned into something, but yet again, I can. Because we're in a political climate and a cultural climate where people create caricatures of other people. And then they construe everything that is uttered in the light least favorable to the person they've created a caricature of, regardless of any fair consideration of the substance. So I'm talking about Laura Trump. She's Eric Trump's wife, daughter-in-law of the president. She's at a campaign event, and they're talking about the Democrat uh, contenders for the nomination. And Laura Trump says this about Biden. Because I'm supposed to want him to fail at every turn, but every time he comes on stage or they turn to him, I'm like, Joe, can you get it out? Let's get the words out, Joe. You kind of feel bad for him. The problem is that's their front runner, guys, okay? Uh, you th- was that a controversial statement in your view? Uh, we've all seen Joe Biden on the campaign trail, on the debate stage. Is that, uh, not only is that a fair critique, isn't it a gentle one? Well, it turns out that Biden had, and, and, and look, I cover this stuff fairly closely, and this was news to me. Biden has spoken about a, uh, a, a, a that uh, during his childhood, he had a problem with stuttering. Yeah, so he, he was a childhood stutterer, or to some extent. Now, also, this is a guy who's got all kinds of fantastical stories 
Uh, so take that into consideration. But anyway, he he said during an interview back in December, according to this report at the com, some people think I still stutter. I don't think of myself that way. So now we're picking on somebody who had a stutter. That's what the Trump Trump world is doing, according to uh, people like Sully Sullenberger, no less. Captain Sully Sullenberger, right? The uh, hero of the uh, that flight that had to land on the Hudson, the U.S. Airways Flight 1549, you know, forever immortalized by Tom Hanks, which was, by the way, a great movie. He authored a New York Times op-ed on Saturday defending Biden amid uh, the comments by Laura Trump, which are being taken as mocking Joe Biden for having a stutter. He wrote, Sully did, those feelings came rushing back, the feelings of, uh, you know, insecurity about uh, being a stutterer himself as a child in Denison, Texas, how hard speaking in class for him was. Those feelings came rushing back when I heard Laura Trump mocking Vice President Joe Biden at a Trump campaign event with the very words that caused my childhood agony. Uh, He said, uh, Lara Trump's words go beyond politics. Stop, grow up, show some decency. People who can't have no place in public life. Uh, He uh, said, you are fine. He said of of Joe Biden, (laughs) you are fine just as you are. You can do any job you dream of when you grow up. I mean, that was a children struggling with stuttering. Excuse me. He said of Joe Biden and uh, people like him. You know, his stutter didn't stop him from being an Air Force fighter pilot, an airline pilot, or even a public speaker. And to kids out there, you're fine just as you are. You can do any job you dream of when you grow up. You can be a pilot who lands your plane on a river and helps save lives or a president who treats people with respect rather than making fun of them. Well, first of all, it wasn't the president of the United States. I mean, I uh, the, President Trump is responsible for everything everyone with uh, his last name says, number one. Number two, I mean, honestly— Lara Trump, do you think she even knew about Joe Biden's uh, childhood stuttering problem? I mean, again, I did not. I didn't know about that. And Joe Biden's been around forever, so I must have missed the times he mentioned on the campaign trail or the interviews where he mentioned it in passing. Do you think it was about his stuttering or do you think it was about the fact that Biden on the debate stage and on the campaign trail and during his 40 years in public life, has been a nonstop gaffe machine that has nothing to do with stuttering. Do you think it's about uh, Joe Biden's inability to present a cogent thought? And it's not a stuttering issue. It's a synapse issue. Does that have anything to do with Joe Biden being wrong on virtually every foreign policy decision that he has weighed in upon? Just the idea that this is an attack on stutterers or it's mocking somebody who stuttered as a child and it's sending this um, message of ridicule to all children who have a stuttering issue. It's just so absurd. Must we politicize everything? Sully Sullenberger has to weigh in on this. Must you construe everything in the in a light most unfavorable to a party that you hold in disfavor? Can you be reasonable at all? Can you avoid having to shoehorn politics into every utterance, even of a politician? Can you let anything pass without trying to whip it into controversy? This is the Dan Prof Show.
typical fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And I mentioned earlier in the show Peggy Noonan's comment in her column over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal that uh, right now feels like 2016 only with full employment. Boy, it really does. And I was talking about uh, Joe Biden in the context of that uh, flap, if you even want to call it that, that manufactured one with Laura Trump. Um, Joe Biden as a rerun of 2016. Uh, I want to get to that. Hugh Hewitt, our friend and colleague, he was on Meet the Press on Sunday, and he had this to say about how he plans to vote come the primary in Virginia. What, what are you hoping for as a conservative here that wants to see uh, the Democrats lose this split here? Because this split might actually help Biden, who might be the tougher foe. I thought the winner of the split was Pete Buttigieg, because either the Warren voter or the Sanders voter who was turned off, they're not going to go to Joe Biden. They've already committed to a progressive. I can tell you one thing, uh, because Virginia allows early voting and because I don't know where NBC or Salem will have me on March 3rd, I'm voting this week. And because it's Virginia, I get to vote in the Democratic primary. I'm voting for Bernie Sanders. And I think a lot of people will because he's authentic. You're going to do calculated voting? Uh, No, it's not. It's not. It's because I think he's authentic. Yeah, you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump? No, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. But I want a clear choice between the authentic, traditional Mm -hmm. socialist and all the people who just pretend to be. Well, I uh, get what uh, Hugh is doing there, of course. And I like the idea of uh, forcing a choice uh, that has a bright line between it capitalism and markets, socialism and a government-centric economy, uh, that being the choice. But uh, the uh, ostensible purpose of voting in the primary that is not the party to which you affiliate is to present the weakest candidate that the, your op- the, the opposition party has to offer. And I'm not so sure it's Bernie Sanders. I've said from the beginning, I think it's Joe Biden. And uh, there are a lot of progressive groups that apparently agree with me from this piece in the Atlantic. Uh, As the Iowa caucuses draw closer, a Biden nomination looking more likely, lefty groups are worried and warning that a Biden win could crush the activist enthusiasm they're counting on to win in November. The thousands of Americans who wait for hours in line to snap a photo with uh, Warren or Phil Arenas for Bernie simply will not be as enthusiastic about the former vice president Leaders at nine progressive organizations, all of which are involved with organizing and get out the vote efforts, told The Atlantic in interviews this week. Yeah. In this negative partisanship environment, if you don't bring your base, then you don't win. And I think Joe Biden is the least likely of the candidates, the candidates that have a chance to be the nominee, at least to bring the base. So this is why I think he's the weakest. Not that I necessarily dispute what uh, our friend Hugh Hewitt is uh, going to do in the Virginia primary. If there's nothing of particular interest on the Republican side, makes perfect sense. And the Joe Biden thing, not just the weakest because of uh, his, you know, 40 years as part of the establishment. um, But he's the weakest because he's another, uh, and because he's sort of pantomiming some of the radical positions of the Marxist base of the party with respect to deindustrializing the economy and uh, and so those sorts of things, even though Biden, during his time in the U.S. Senate, was considered one of the more liberal members of the Senate. That's how far off the edge the Democrat socialists have gone. But there is this problem and this parallel with Biden and Hillary Clinton in 2016, and that's self-enrichment. And, yeah, there's been a lot of 
attention paid, not near enough, but a lot of attention paid to Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine and China when Joe, as vice president, was the point person for the Obama administration as it pertained to Ukraine and China. But there's more and there's more coming. Peter Schweitzer has a new book out called Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. And he one of the families he profiles is the Biden family. And it's not just Hunter. The Biden family's apparent self-enrichment involves no less than five family members. Hunter, his son-in-law, Howard, brothers, brothers, James and Frank and his sister, Valerie. James Biden. Not a lot of ink on James Biden. Not yet. And now think of this in the context of how important Peter Schweitzer's Clinton cash book was. All the Clinton Foundation uh, dealings uh, uh, that framed her in 2016, at least in part. So did James Biden. After uh, this is uh, after Joe, after Biden was elected to U.S. Senate in 1972, he would bring his brother James along on congressional delegation trips to places like Ireland, Rome, and Africa. And that began James Biden's forays into overseas business. Consider the case of Hillstone International, writes Peter Schweitzer in an excerpt of his book, uh, reprinted in the New York Post. Hillstone International, a subsidiary of the huge construction management firm Hill International. Uh, the president of Hillstone was Kevin Justice, who grew up in Delaware, a longtime Biden family friend. He visited the White House back in 2010, met with a Biden advisor in the office of the vice president. Three weeks later, Hillstone announced that James Biden, Joe's brother, would be joining the firm as executive VP. James appeared to have little or no background in housing construction, but that didn't seem to matter to Hillstone, just like as it was with Hunter and Burisma. No background in energy policy, but didn't matter. Uh, James Biden was joining Hillstone just as the firm was starting negotiations to win a massive contract in war-torn Iraq. Six months later, the firm announced a contract to build 100,000 homes, part of a $35 billion, 500,000-unit project deal won by a South Korean company. Hillstone also received $22 million in U.S. federal government, a $22 million U.S. federal government contract to manage a construction project for the State Department. David Richter, son of the parent company's founder, not shy in explaining Hillstone's success in securing government contracts. It really helps, he told investors at a private meeting, to have, quote, the brother of the vice president as a partner, unquote. The Iraq Project, massive. Perhaps the single most lucrative firm, the uh, project the firm ever had. In 2016, Charlie Gasparino of Fox Business reported that Hillstone officials expected the project to generate $1.5 billion in revenues over the next three years, which amounted to more than three times the revenue the company had produced the year prior. A group of minority partners, including James Biden, stood to split about $735 million. Now, uh, the deal ultimately got tubed because Hillstone made some crucial errors and the firm was forced to back out of the contract. Uh, But nonetheless, this was what was being wired up. Hillstone continues to do significant contract work in Iraq, including a six-year contract with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And James Biden is essentially acting as a rainmaker, a rainmaker because of his relationship with Joe as the vice president of the United States at the time. And that that got that firm in the door. And now they've stayed. This doesn't even get to Frank Biden or his son-in-law, Dr. Howard Crean, uh, and then more on uh, Hunter Biden, too, that has nothing to do with Burisma in Ukraine or Rosemont Partners in China. 
you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So just picking up on uh, the Peter Schweitzer excerpt about the Bidens and uh, the self-enrichment schemes that uh, have involved not just Hunter Biden, but also Joe Biden's son-in-law, Howard, his brothers, James and Frank, his sister, Valerie, just went through James, his brother. One other scheme with Hunter that's worth noting, this entity called Burnham Financial. Burnham became a vehicle for a number of murky deals abroad, including deals involving oligarchs in Kazakhstan, state-owned businesses in China. But one of the most troubling Burnham ventures was here in the United States, in which Burnham became the center of a federal investigation involving a $60 million fraud scheme against one of the poorest Indian tribes in America, the Oglala Sioux tribe. Three people ended up being indicted. All were convicted. Devin Archer, who is also Biden's partner in that Rosemont Partners. I know this is like you need a crime family org chart, but Devin Archer is also the partner in Hunter Biden's private equity play in China that got a billion dollar infusion of Chinese communist cash. Okay, so that's the Devin Archer. He was convicted in this scheme, too, but his conviction was overturned. Two other individuals with Burnham Financial were convicted and sentenced. The scheme was designed to target pension funds that had, quote unquote, socially responsible investing clauses, including pension funds of labor union organizations that had publicly supported Joe Biden's political campaigns in the past. Eight of the 11 pension funds that lost their money were either government employee or labor union pension funds. And it's clear from transcripts from Devin Archer's trial that Hunter Biden's role at Burnham, this Burnham uh, outfit, related to relying on his father's name and political status as both a means of recruiting pension money into the scheme, as well as alleviating investors' concerns as the fraud was ongoing. So that's just a whole nother Hunter Biden one. Frank Biden, just real quick, Frank Biden, here's another one. Joe Biden takes a trip to Costa Rica, March of 2009. The timing was fortuitous for his brother, Frank, who was busy working deals in the country. Just months after VP Biden's visit in August, Costa Rica News announced a new multilateral partnership to reform real estate in Latin America between Frank Biden, another developer, and the Guanacaste Country Club, uh, a newly planned resort. The partnership basically was to advance Frank's dream of building in the jungles of Costa Rica, thousands of homes, world-class golf course, casinos, and an anti-aging center. Joe could use that. The Costa Rican government eager to cooperate with the vice president's brother. Of course they were. And this goes on. He also gets involved in renewable energy deals that are being backed by the United States federal government. So this, again, as with Hunter, as with James, his other brother, this is leveraging Joe's position as the vice president of the United States with overseas business dealings. And here... Joe, again, as he was point for Ukraine and point for China with respect to the Obama administration, he also became point to Caribbean nations like Costa Rica. Wherever Joe goes, the family's in tow looking to leverage his name and the vice president's office to enrich themselves. Tell me how that's different than the Clinton Foundation. Tell me how 2020 would be any different than 2016 in terms of prosecuting the self-dealing case against Joe Biden the way it was prosecuted against Hillary Clinton. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Last summer, Cheryl Atkinson uh, did this piece on uh, the hurricane aid to Puerto Rico. Just how effective has the response been? Are people who were hurt because of the hurricane lost property and so forth, or have they been made whole or as close to whole as we can make them with resources? Infrastructure being rebuilt so that people have clean water and shelter and the like, the basics. Here's what Cheryl Atkinson found last summer. But it turns out the biggest disaster relief effort in American history is also the most complicated. Part of the explanation can be found in massive protests against Puerto Rico's government while we were there in July. Fueling discontent in Puerto Rico is news that a number of government officials and contractors are under FBI investigation over allegations involving misuse of all the taxpayer money sent in after Hurricane Maria. The FBI has arrested six top Puerto Rican government officials and consultants. Also charged, FEMA official Asha Tribble. Once an Obama Homeland Security advisor, Tribble took the lead on getting Puerto Rico's electric grid fixed. Now she's accused of taking bribes to steer a $1.8 billion contract to a company called Cobra. Cobra's CEO at the time and a FEMA friend of Tribble's who went to work for Cobra were also arrested. All have denied wrongdoing. I mean, this rolls on to present day. Over the weekend, CBS News reporting Puerto Rican Governor Wanda Vasquez Garced fired the island's emergency management director after a video showing aid sitting unused in a warehouse went viral on social media. Now, three years into it, I thought the problem's response was, was that Trump doesn't like brown people. Is that it? Oh, oh, there's more to the story? Huh. And it continues and it continues. And these Puerto Rican officials, the corruption in Puerto Rico, this is this is like a classic example of the problem with the Beltway press corps. How is it that you don't follow up on these momentous stories? I mean, Cheryl Atkinson did. But how is it that you know she's one of the few doing it? I, I thought you cared about how U.S. taxpayer dollars were used. I thought you cared about people being afforded the help that they need. Right. I thought I thought you're to comfort the afflicted as well as afflict the comfortable. Finley Peter Dunn. So why is there no follow up to make sure that the afflicted aren't comforted in the way that they are promised they will be? Remarkable story, this uh, Puerto Rican hurricane story, three years after the fact and still people being fired, resources not being deployed to help people, the corruption that Cheryl Atkinson referenced in that bite. For more on uh, this topic, and we've got a couple others to cover with her, we're pleased to be joined again by Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great piece that you did last summer, and I just wanted to get your reviews on the situation on the ground in Puerto Rico, uh, given uh, you're ahead of the learning curve here, and we still have some of the same problems you identified persisting, apparently. And you've also uh, written about other matters in Puerto Rico, including uh, their battles with drugs and illegal immigration. Nobody there is surprised, I can tell you. I mean, our sources, when we went over the stories about fraud and investigated the money that was unspent and unused, although they received it, those were Puerto Rican officials and Puerto Rican sources that we had. It's funny to read here people saying that when you criticize some of the spending that it's somehow anti-Puerto Rican, when actually it's the Puerto Ricans themselves who are 
crying for accountability, who are protesting government and who are upset over all of this. I, I will remind you that we crunched the numbers and the numbers that have been reported widely were not accurate as far as how much tax money we've spent over there after the hurricanes. I think we came up with they have we've agreed to give them ninety one billion dollars. Forty eight billion will come from US emergency recovery funds. Remember they're US territory. And forty three billion has been appropriated by Congress so far. They've gotten a lot of it, but almost none had been spent. In other words, they have money years later for their hurricane recovery and almost nothing has been spent on the actual people there. Now they have something like sixty two thousand people who had been denied help, even though all that money was sitting there. The TARP issue, you know, we showed pictures and flew over Puerto Rico to see how many TARPs were still covering roofs. Those were supposed to last like 90 days and were still there three years later. Hmm. Uh, that's improved a lot. Just because the TARPs are gone doesn't mean things are normal. In fact, when we were there over the summer, not one school, these are devastated schools that were not in great condition to begin with. Not one school had had a penny spent from these emergency recovery funds yet. See, and and this this seems to me a combination uh, of two dynamics that we see a lot, including in uh, big city governments like here in Chicago. The combination of corruption and the lack of systems in place to efficiently deliver goods or services. That's right. Is that is that that the dynamic in Puerto Rico as far as you see it? Yes. And one more problem. You know, they complain, some of the officials there, that FEMA, the restrictions for getting the money are too tough. But on the other hand, FEMA explains they have to make them tough. They can't just pour money without a lot of accountability into something that is not verified and justified and documented, you know, to these bids for work and projects because of the corruption. So it's sort of this double-edged sword. The money is there. It's hard to get out. It shouldn't be just thrown at these municipalities that in some cases are known or or connected to corruption. It's a very difficult situation. You know, um, as I reported, FEMA officials have been arrested. <laughs> yes, right. I don't know. I don't know what you do. Maybe you could get an outsider if there was a will. I can think of maybe a couple of names of people that could go try to tackle something like that. But it's honestly, it's the story of every disaster. I've covered others. Money goes out the door. Money is appropriated. There's all this pressure. It's bipartisan. And then you look a year, two years later, Senator Grassley's writing a letter after Hurricane after Superstorm Sandy because the money hasn't been spent. Right. And all the people that think their money is going to residents who are devastated may, may not have insurance to cover something. They're not getting the money. You can't exactly tell where all the billions goes. And sometimes, you know, I always think, hey, if it's been three years and they haven't spent the emergency funds, the emergency is over. You know, is, is the money really necessary on an emergency basis after that? But this is this is how it works. Maybe we need to scramble that to General Honore from Katrina, who uh, complained about everybody being stuck on stupid. Send him down there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I want to tackle another topic that you have as well, and that is uh, the appointment of uh, Obama era uh, Justice, the DOJ attorney, David Chris, to be the point person for reviews of Christopher Ray, FBI Director Christopher Ray's recommendations as to how to improve policies and procedures in the FBI so that frauds are not perpetrated on the FISA court like they were under Jim Comey, apparently, for things, uh, the example, prime example being the surveillance of Carter Page. Um, David Chris, not exactly a Trump fan, not exactly a Devin Nunez fan, has said some wildly partisan things, and so his appointment was criticized, but by the same token, last week, in response to the reforms proposed by Christopher Ray, uh, he basically said they're not good enough. Well, you know, I, I still think 
he's the wrong man in terms of bringing confidence into the system. This is somebody, he can say what he likes, but people probably don't get the sense in general that there's going to be a fair hearing for this stuff because not only is he, you know, I don't really have the problem with the Obama era guy, but he has recently written that Trump has to go. Yes. He writes for this, this partisan blog called Lawfare, which is the one whose who's lead guy, Benjamin Wittes, published the need for an insurance policy if Trump were elected and started organizing how to obstruct him at every turn. I mean, this isn't just sort of a neutral person that has some political opinions. This is a really, really partisan guy that seems to hate Trump. How can he go in there? And he's defended the FISA process, by the way, and the warrants. How does he go in and then genuinely do what's necessary to reform? And I think this is evidence as to why and how FISA and the FBI cannot reform themselves. You know, it's just not possible for them to say, here's what we did wrong and here's who should help us fix it. Uh, he does conclude, though, in his initial reaction to raise suggestions, the FBI must restore and the court should insist to restore strong organizational, organizational culture of accuracy and completeness. Um, and uh, he makes other such pronouncements. He also makes specific recommendations like requiring the FBI to regularly submit reports on training participation rates and test scores. That could in turn prohibit FBI agents who haven't successfully completed FISA warrants from assigning. I mean, none of that. None of that, that is. Listen, from someone who studied this a little bit, okay. none of that's the problem. It's not that anybody didn't understand how to fill out a FISA warrant. This has been going on since 2000. These abuses. The FBI has pledged to fix them before. That's why something called the Woods procedures were instituted. Mm-hmm. When they're patrolling themselves, and when there are bad actors and dishonest people like a lawyer that will doctor a document. It's not a matter of just better training and better oversight. These were top officials doing this at the FBI. So, again, I still don't think that may be his answer, but I'm just not confident that's really going to fix anything. Well, right. I mean, it's the fundamental problem is just you have people at the upper reaches of that agency and probably not exclusively that agency that are primarily political actors, not law enforcement actors. And out for themselves, let's say establishment actors. Sometimes it's not even for one party or another. It's to keep the power for themselves and to keep the power where it is, Mm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. No, I think that's fair. I think that's right. It is a culture problem, but not in the way that David Chris is suggesting it. I think that's fair. Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist and Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure. Cheryl, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We've talked about the weaponizing of law enforcement and intelligence agencies in the context of the Trump impeachment and even prior to the investigation into President Trump by Bob Mueller, the conduct of uh, senior level officials, at the FBI, the CIA, perhaps the Obama and cabinet level secretaries. But, I mean, we talked in the, the Obama administration weaponizing the IRS for political ends, going after individuals, organizations with respect to their 501c3 status, if they were pro-life or if they were a Tea Party organization or some kind of voter integrity project. Well, it looks like that, that weaponization of different agencies for political ends and thus the different treatment of similarly situated people based on the politics of the situation 
also extends to security clearances and security clearances of whistleblowers for all of the incantations from Democrats about the whistleblower in the Ukraine matter, the need to protect his identity, how sacrosanct a whistleblower is, the protections that whistleblowers are afforded. It's a very interesting investigative piece by Susan Crabtree at RealClearPolitics.com, where uh, she is a senior White House and national political correspondent. And it's about uh, another whistleblower you haven't heard of in a case you most assuredly hadn't heard of, and how this whistleblower is being treated versus, say, how the Ukraine aid whistleblower, so-called whistleblowers being treated. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Susan Crabtree. Susan, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. It's wonderful to be with you. So uh, tell us about the case of one Mark Moyer, a whistleblower who reported multiple instances of alleged wrongdoing, corruption, wrongful expenditure of funds at the U.S. Agency for International Development. So Mark Moyer is more of an academic. He graduated from Cambridge with a Ph.D. in military history, and he worked at CSIS in the Center for International Studies, very well-known and respected think tank in Washington, D.C., and he decided to join the administration as a Trump political appointee at the U.S. International Development Aid Office. It's sort of a a cousin, (laughs) the red-haired cousin of the State Department, Uh, but it's in charge of doling out a lot of taxpayer dollars all over the world to try to help stabilize and uh, provide some economic stability activity in you know hot spots around the globe and he felt compelled to take this job but he was given the mission of leading the civilian military affairs office which has about 50 people and as part of that from what I understand the chief of staff who is a political appointee working for the administrator Mark Reed gave him a mission of cleaning up that office. It was notorious for uh, its waste, fraud, and abuse. And I can't go into all the details of that, but with the retribution that he received was obvious. When you disclose that type of behavior, it did launch some IG investigations that were pursued. Uh, I don't know how strenuously they were pursued, but when you have told those stories and uh, made those allegations that have serious weight and have people removed in those offices because of your whistleblowing, you have certain protections. And we've heard all about, as you mentioned, the protection that the Ukraine whistleblower that launched the impeachment inquiry and now trial this week against President Trump, that his protections are sacrosanct. And there is even some investigations on the Republican side, Devin Nunez and others, who are looking into whether there were the head of the IGs, of all the IGs, helped change the rules to allow for secondhand reporting because he didn't have, this, that particular whistleblower against the president, didn't have firsthand knowledge of that phone call with uh, the Ukrainian president. So in that case, rules appear to have been changed or might have been changed to help benefit and help provide more protections for the whistleblower. In the case of this Trump political appointee, the opposite happened. The IG did not provide him the protections that exist under the law for when your security clearance is targeted or anything that happens to your security clearance, even if it's threatened after you're a whistleblower. And that's basically, I mean, I can go into further detail, but there's what's called CPD-19, the Presidential Protective Order that President Obama put in place to help protect against the type of weaponizing of security clearances. And those are that directive is supposed to be put in place if you're a whistleblower and you have any threat 
even a threat to security clearance. It doesn't need to be suspended. In this case, Mark Moyer's security clearance was indeed suspended, and he was put on administrative leave. And, and ultimately forced to resign, right? He was forced to. He was terminated okay. uh, formally, but he taught. From what I understand, uh, a couple of days later, they allowed him to resign. And, and you uh, make mention here that uh, part of the issue that they that those that were after Moyer used was this book that he published, uh, and whether or not he uh, uh, disclosed classified information in that book that he shouldn't have disclosed. But yet, you point out there was a review of his book. Lauding, as, lauding it as an excellent primer that was published on the CIA's website shortly after it was after the book was published in 2017 and remains there to present. So um, that would s- tend to, to suggest that maybe there wasn't such an issue with classified information. You would think, uh, you know, you would have put it past the government bungling there. But, you know, we don't know. But here's what I know about the pre-publication process. I talked to several experts um, who, you know, even former CIA director um, Leon Panetta had a problem with submitting his his book, his memoir, uh, to the pre-publication clearance process. They're very, they don't have any timelines. They're very arbitrary. So what happened to Mr. Moyer is he gave them, uh, it's supposed to take 30 to 60 working days, which translates to about three months, uh, just if you count the working days. So it's supposed to take that long. So he gave him that long, and then he said checked in, and there was no response. He waited a few more months. He and his publisher and his lawyers, uh, from what I understand uh, from his sworn statement uh, that he provided to when his clearance was threatened to USAID, he he said, you know, I did, I provided all of this, but I was frustrated because they weren't getting back to me, and it didn't seem like they cared about my book, and the. When I talk to experts in this matter, lawyers have dealt with pre-publication clearance issues and who are suing, ACLU lawyers are suing um, uh, the government because they feel like the process is so arbitrary. Right. When you talk to them, uh, they say, you know, it is a matter, It if there was a real problem with his what he disclosed, the Justice Department would be suing him for his profits. And to try to stop the book, they would, eat, and in some cases, they would confiscate. They were, that's usually the process that happens is they sue, and that's not happening right here. And we also know that the individuals that he whistle he blew the whistle on have strong ties to SOCOM. Uh, so this, that's the that's the military command that uh, that complained about what was in his book that he disclosed classified information. So. We're not clear. I'm going to do some more investigating on that. But what we, we, we do know for sure is that there were supposed to be protections put in place from this uh, President Obama directive that was signed in 2012 to protect against uh, people getting their uh, clearances targeted, and that was not the case. They and their and, and their jobs targeted, for that matter. But, yeah, this uh, thank you for bringing uh, this case of Mark Moyer to our attention. We'll look forward to more reporting by you on the topic. She is Susan Crabtree, senior White House and national political correspondent for RealClearPolitics.com. I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show her piece, A Tale of Two Whistleblowers, One Protected, One Not. Susan, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Perfect. Wonderful to be with you. Take care. 
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. on campus, uh, including at a recent uh, conference of scientists. Uh, joining us for this discussion is Peter Wood. He is the president of the National Association of Scholars. Peter, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate that. All right. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I read uh, with interest this op-ed you had in the Wall Street Journal the other day about uh, this conference, Fixing Science, Practical Solutions for the Irreproducibility Crisis, I'm sure a lot of people are not familiar with the e-reproducibility crisis, but uh, I'm sure it was a uh, uh, a scintillating uh, gathering of intellects. But uh, you were criticized for what uh, with respect to this conference? Well, the conference hasn't actually happened yet. It's on February 7th and 8th. But I was criticized for five things. Uh, I was criticized because none of the announced speakers are women. I was criticized because the initials of my organization, National Association of Scholars, are the same as the initials of the National Academy of Sciences, and that was deemed to be deceptive, although we've had that name for 35 years or so. Uh, you can't third, have two, two organizations uh, can't have the same con- two organizations mm-hmm. can't have the same acronym. Well, there's many. The National Audubon Society <laughs> yeah, has right. the same initials too. Yeah, right. <laughs> But okay. they're the ones who are accused of being deceptive. Of course. Uh, All right. The uh, third item was that the uh, Wikipedia says we're a conservative organization, and that's a no-no. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth item was that we are deemed to be climate deniers, although I haven't denied any climates recently. Mm-hmm. And finally, we are accused of deceiving our speakers into coming to the conference and giving legitimacy to the world of climate deniers by tricking them into thinking that it's really a science conference and not a climate denial conference. And the, uh, to be clear, yeah. none of those things are valid, but you know, it's how it is. And that, that those criticisms that you just outlined are coming from which quarters? Who, who are the critics? Um, well, they came directly from a uh, science blogger, uh, Mr. Teitelman, um, and he uh, got it into the Twitter feed, and then uh, dozens of other left-wing activists decided that we needed to be canceled. Um, Mr. Teitelman wrote individually to the speakers at the conference, urging them to withdraw, and uh, the sort of the meme got out there that this was a terrible event and should be suppressed at all costs. So I responded. I want to uh, pick up on the first criticism, the lack of diversity in your speakers, uh, that your your announced speakers, because uh, there's uh, something akin to that uh, coming out of the University of Illinois. Uh, One uh, administrator saying that requiring diversity statements and employment applications, it should be mandatory because traditional markers of mathematical excellence get in the way of diversity. Traditional markers of mathematical excellence get to continue to act contrary to diversity, equity, and inclusion, said this administrator. Um, if I could translate there, I'm sure it's not lost on you, 
But that is a remarkable example of the soft bigotry of low expectations. What he's basically saying is that minorities aren't good at math. Well, I think that that's certainly in there. The idea is that, uh, you know, mathematics, one would think, is fairly cut and dry. Either you can do it well or you can't. And uh, any university that is serious about mathematics would want to get the best people within reach, uh, not adjust its uh, hiring regimen to pick up people who may not be so great at mathematics but have the right genes. Well, right, and and so and so is the case with your conference and your invited speakers. Oh, absolutely, we paid no attention at all to the uh, sex of the people we invited to speak. Uh, there were a good many women we invited to speak, and a good many men. Uh, and uh, as it happened, none of the women that we initially invited uh, accepted. So, uh, never gave a thought to it that there was anything wrong with that. We were very happy to get the people that we did get. Well, that's where those uh, bloggers and other woke academics come in and remind you of things you hadn't thought about, I suppose. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk to you about textbooks and this New York Times uh, expose comparing uh, textbooks in California schools to textbooks in Texas schools. We're going to talk more about uh, the state of higher education with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, if I'm allowed to use that name. Uh, right after this on the Dan Prop Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prop, and this is the Dan Prop Show. We're back on the Dan Prof Show with Peter Wood. He's the president of the National Association of Scholars. And, uh, Peter, I'm sure you saw this New York Times piece uh, by Dana Goldstein that looked at two states and eight textbooks, uh, two, the two states being Texas and California, and uh, found that uh, there are two different American stories being told in terms of our history, which is sort of an ironic thing for the New York Times, who is pushing the 1619 Project, which is an alternative American history uh, that starts with the idea that we weren't real act. The country was actually founded in 1776, but 1619, their uh, concern about two different stories being told in California and Texas is boy, uh, a little bit uh, rich, but nonetheless, there is uh, something to be said about uh, the quality of the textbooks that are used as it pertains to the quality of the instruction. I mean, of course the left has benefited greatly in terms of their agenda from the presence of Howard Zinn's People's History of the of the United States as one of the go-to textbooks for, for American history? Well, I, I am first familiar with the article. I've read it carefully a couple times. I've been thinking about whether I should respond to it more formally, so thanks for the opportunity to bring it up. Um, textbooks are a important, although not the most important part of instruction. And I think you do see, if you read the New York Times, that California has pretty heavily politicized uh, its uh, textbooks in history. Um, 
I would, as I read this, what I see is that Texas seems to be doing a better job, uh, but the lens of the New York Times reverses that perspective because the uh, Texas textbooks don't celebrate illegal immigrants and don't put enough emphasis on LGBTQ matters. Uh, they don't uh, run down capitalism and free markets as terrible things. The Times uh, views that as a uh, disservice to the young people of Texas. Uh, I think the disservice is being done to the young people of California, although uh, of all the many assaults on their uh, learning, this is only one of them. Well, sure. I mean, uh, you know, there's exa- examples that have been documented, too. I mean, the... the um the elevation of, for example, in California, the elevation of Harvey Milk to deity status, and that's fine. Uh, first, uh, a gay public, uh, uh, pu- publicly elected official. Uh, okay, you, well and good. You want to discuss him in the context of of uh, American history or LGBT history, whatever. Fine. But it, the the thing that I find uh, disconcerting, it's the same thing with the 1619 Project, it's purposely telling only a little bit of the story in advance of a particular ideology, worldview that you're trying to advance, not in, not in the, rather than an understanding that you're trying to foster. So, for example, when you leave out Harvey Milk's relationship with Jim Jones, you're leaving out mm. material facts that need to be included for a contextual picture. And when you leave out, as they do in the 1619 Project, uh, a discussion of slavery, when you leave out the Civil War, (laughs) that's sort of a material fact that you're leaving out in order to have a better understanding of the history of slavery in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, the 1619 Project is just a, a national disgrace. And it's being rolled out as a curriculum by the Times' partner in this enterprise, the Pulitzer Foundation. And thousands and thousands of history teachers around the country have uh, said and signed up that they're going to use the lesson plans that come out of this. Uh, my organization's fighting the 1619 Project. We're replying with what we're calling the 1620 Project, which uh, names the year in which the Pilgrims created the Mayflower Compact which is the first instance of uh, deliberative self-government in the New World. So uh, it's not quite 1776 yet, but early events in the history of the country do matter, and it's a question of whether the arrival of a uh, a bunch of pirates who had captured a slave ship in Jamestown in 1619 is really the most pivotal event in the history of the country, or whether we can take a look at some other developments that led to this ultimately being a free republic that did away with slavery. Well, in addition to that, Bob Woodson had a good piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. We spoke to him earlier in the show about uh, the left uh, misstating, misunderstanding Martin Luther King's legacy, as we're speaking today on the day in which we honor Martin Luther King and his legacy, and that he would reject, Woodson argues, the identity politics of today because King was uniquely American. He was a patriot, and he wanted America to fulfill its promissory note. He wasn't a subversive. He didn't hate America. He would, uh, Woodson essentially argues, he would find no uh, allies with the intellects behind the 1619 Project or the academics that lord over so many college campuses today that speak about race and identity obsessively, but not nothing like King spoke about it or understood it. Well, King understood that to advance 
civil rights for anyone requires that we pull together as a single nation that has a single set of underlying values and that uh, involve the recognition that people need to be treated fairly, not on the basis of race or color or other sort of accidental characteristics, but on the basis of our shared humanity and our shared citizenship in this nation. No question about that. And instead, we have today, um, let's say I got to get one more in here just because this was, uh, well, a, a positive note, too. I don't know if you know about this, but I, I you know, again, in the the textbooks, this is an alternative to the Howard's Inn narrative. And, you know, maybe that's it. It's com- competition in the marketplace like anything else. Wilford uh, McClay, who's a history professor at the University of Oklahoma, has a textbook that was published in May titled Land of Hope, an Invitation to a Great American Story. Uh, that tells a story, according to him, of American history that neither downplays nor overemphasizes the faults and triumphs of the nation, tries to tackle both to get a general grasp on history in the classroom. So um, there's actual thought that goes on and uh, intellectual rigor that takes place rather than just sort of rote indoctrination. Professor McClay is the keynote speaker at an event we're putting on um, this uh Friday at Pepperdine University about the lost history of Western civilization, the attempt by the left to suppress the whole idea that Western civilization is a framework worth teaching. So I'm glad that you brought him up. He is Peter Wood. He's the president of the National Association of Scholars. Peter, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And I know I'm going to be monitored by the Chinese because I use this app now, but a, a fun video posted on TikTok, this is a social media app that offers a illustration of the difference between the millennial dad and the boomer dad. Hey, coach, come over here. He pulls that tomahawk swing thing again. I want you to bench him. He needs to learn a lesson. Coach, can you put my son in the pitch? Some of the other kids have been pitching, and I, I think my son should get to pitch, too. What do you think, kids? Should we hit the drive through The old man needs a Big Mac. No, no, guys. We're not stopping at McDonald's. Too many GMOs. We'll swing by Whole Foods. Do you want to go to Kittyland? We're not doing that today. Go play with that box over there. Guys, this isn't a box. It's a space shuttle. I'll go grab the washable non-toxic markers. Craft time. Here you go, Keiston. Your non-dairy, no-crust grilled cheese. Keiston. Oh, you want something else? Well, I'll make you something else. All right, kids. Dad's cooking. Uh, I think we're just going to have leftovers. You don't get a choice. We're having leftovers, and you're going to like it. This is fun. Everyone's a winner today. You guys even want to win out there? You want second place. Second place is first loser. Hey, are you guys wearing your seatbelts? Both of them? Put both seatbelts on. That seatbelt's broken. Just, like, hang on to the handle or something up there. Don't tell your mother, though. Honestly, growing up, my dad being a boomer... Me being a Gen Xer, the cars had seatbelts. You didn't have seatbelts. There's literally a hole in the back seat where you could put, you know, most of your leg through if 
the car was not moving, uh, but certainly your foot through. Still a hole in the floor of the back seat. So all the, the two seatbelts thing uh, rings particularly salient to me. But he, here's the thing. The good uh, piece in interview with Edward Glazer, who's a Harvard professor, schooled in the University of Chicago economics, thank goodness, one of the few at Harvard, uh, talking about Bernie Sanders. Uh, and the piece, Boomer Socialism Led to Bernie Sanders, and also led probably in part to the millennial dad that's caricatured in that video. 50% of adults under the age of 38 told a Harris poll last year they would prefer living in a socialist country. And this recurs over and over again in many more surveys since. He argues that young people have become radicalized politically because there are a number of ways in which the modern economy isn't working all that well for them. It was the result of boomers becoming the insiders and Gen Xers, their kids, but certainly now their grandkids, millennials, becoming outsiders. And he goes through a number of examples where you just don't have the same benefits, the same opportunities to achieve the same sort of economic security that was uh, prevalent 30 years ago. For example, housing, because of a intergenerational redistribution that has restricted the housing supply. By 2013, a 35 to 44 year old person at the 75th percentile in terms of income had less than half as much home equity in real dollars as his counterpart did 30 years ago because of all the restrictions that came with developing your property over that time period. Uh, And there are a number of other examples, including unfunded liabilities with respect to public sector pensions and obviously the 45-degree spike in, well, 45-degree trend up in college tuition and the like. All of these things have led to a radicalization. The system isn't working for me. It's working for the insiders, my parents or grandparents, the boomer generation, at my expense. So why not socialism? And uh, that those two, uh, those two dads playing those two roles is in part just an illustration of it. This has been The Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.